Um, I apologise for the fact that I'm going to have to sort of turn around here a bit. The way that I've got to plug my computer into all the, the gubbins over there uh, means I have to operate it remotely. And usually I can kind of look at my screen here and, and look at your lovely faces uh, whilst you uh, ignore my ugly mug and look at the screen. Uh, but tonight I'll have to do a sort of a bit of, a bit of this. Uh, don't look at me too much, you'll get a bit dizzy, I think. Uh, so the, the specific title, I've heard that all sorts of people have been giving slightly different titles to what's being addressed tonight. They're all in the right ballpark, uh, but specifically I'm going to be looking at the question of, is Christianity unscientific? And I'd like to uh, sort of set the field up for this by a very uh, interesting, shall we say, quote from one of the new atheists, a guy called Sam Harris, who recently said this about James Watson and Francis Crick, two scientists. He said, James Watson, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, a Nobel laureate, and the original head of the Human Genome Project, recently asserted in an interview that people of African descent appear to be innately less intelligent than white Europeans. A few sentences spoken off the cuff resulted in academic defenestration. Watson's opinions on race are disturbing, but his underlying point was not in principle, and notice I've highlighted this word, unscientific. There is at least a possible scientific basis for his views. While Watson's statement was obnoxious, one cannot say that his views are utterly irrational. And note the change here from unscientific to irrational. Or that by merely giving voice to them, he has repudiated the scientific worldview and declared himself immune to its further discoveries. Such a distinction would have to be reserved for Watson's successor at the Human Genome Project, Dr. Francis Collins. Now, what is it about Dr. Francis Collins, you may ask yourself, that puts him so beyond the pale that his views are basically worse than racism? Well, it's because Dr. Francis Collins is a Christian. Now, is being a Christian, having a Christian view of things, unscientific, beyond the pale, in Sam Harris's intimations? Well, typical philosopher's answers, you'll find any philosopher you know is enamoured of this phrase. It depends what you mean by. And then we go on a long spiel and uh, emphasise the importance of defining terms. And indeed, I'm going to do some of that with us uh, tonight. What do you mean by, for example, science? What do you mean by being unscientific? And what do you mean by Christianity? It depends what you mean by these things as to whether or not being a Christian, having a Christian worldview, is to be unscientific. So let's uh, start with science. It's also a very vexed issue much debated by philosophers of science as to what uh, definition, if any, it is possible to give to science. Uh, science originally just comes from the Latin word scientia, meaning uh, a knowledge or a discipline of knowledge. 
But today we tend to use science in a, a much narrower sense than just something we can know. Scientism, this is the difference between science and scientism. Scientism, I would define as a view which basically ignores this fact that we use science in a narrower sense than used to be the case. A typical uh, recent example of scientism was put forward by Stephen Hawking in his book The Grand Design, where in the opening he says this, philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. You can't know stuff through philosophy, that's dead. Science is going to give you all of the answers about everything. Well, that's scientism. And as Professor John Lennox, a philosopher of science from Oxford, points out, Hawking's statement about philosophy is itself a philosophical statement. It is manifestly not a statement of science. You know, what science do you do to get the result? Philosophy is dead. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. And in philosophy, it doesn't get any worse for a viewpoint than that. Being self-contradictory, it is a classical example of logical incoherence, as Lennox says. So philosophy is not dead. Uh, however, alive and kicking science may also be. So here's my attempt at giving a definition of science for us. And I'll, I'll just give it to you, then I'll pick out a few kind of um, edited highlights. Science is a first-order discipline involving systematic inquiry into the physical world, the primary aim of which is to know, that is, um, to understand, to explain and or predict as much as we can about physical reality. Let me just take us through that a little bit at a time. It's a first order discipline. By that I mean, for example, questions about the nature of science. Questions like, how should we define science? Are not first order questions of science. They are rather second order or philosophical questions about science. It's also focused, I think, on physical reality. And that means, I suggest, that first-order scientific knowledge of physical reality doesn't exclude the possibility of philosophical knowledge about non-physical realities. Science isn't one and the same thing as a naturalistic worldview or materialistic worldview, in other terms. Using uh, science to say that there's nothing beyond the physical is a little bit like the fisherman who gets his net with a certain size hole in them, goes fishing, drags up a lot of fish bigger than the holes, and then says, there you are. That proves it. There are no fish smaller than this big. Doesn't work. In other words, I think this boils down to the fact that science, to put it in highfalutin philosophical terms, is neither epistemologically nor ontologically omnicompetent. Now, what you'll find out about philosophers is they love uh, obfuscating stuff, that is, confusing things, 
with long words. You know, every discipline does it to keep people uh, on the outside. What this basically means is that science doesn't encompass every way of knowing, doesn't encompass every way of knowing, or everything about we, which we could know. It's not going to give us all the answers. But what about Christianity? What is Christianity and being a Christian? Let me direct your attention to this uh, short passage from Luke's book of Acts, uh, History of the Early Church, uh, in which he records the first public sermon given by one of Jesus' disciples, a guy called Peter. And I've picked this deliberately because there's actually, you'll notice, no um, real content in this quote that tells you about Christianity. But what I'm focusing on here is a structure, a structure rather than a content, first of all. So in this first public sermon, Peter said, uh, gave this sermon, and then Luke records this response from the, the crowd in Acts 2, verse 37. So when the people heard this proclamation of the Christian message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, the other disciples of Jesus, brothers, what shall we do? So they heard the message that Peter gave, which was a message about Jesus and who he was and their belief that they'd met him risen again from the dead. They had a, a certain response, an attitudinal response. They were cut to the heart. And then they asked, what shall we do? So you have some beliefs, some attitudes towards what's being proclaimed, and some actions that take place as a consequence. And this, I would suggest, is a general structure of any and all spiritualities. A spirituality, such as Christianity, but there are others as well, obviously, a spirituality is a way of relating to reality, what you think is real. Via your worldview beliefs, certain attitudes that you adopt to what you believe is real, and certain behaviours that flow out of that. Now, any spirituality will have that general structure. Sam Harris will have a spirituality. He will believe certain things about reality, he has certain attitudes, and he does certain things because of it. Like write articles in newspapers about Francis Collins and so on. But different spiritualities will fill that out with different content, and Christianity has a specific content that fills it out. Jesus basically taught that true spirituality means loving God, as he said, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, with everything you are. But notice, with all of your heart, attitudes, mind, including your worldview, strength, things that you do. You could put it as a sort of circle, any spirituality is self-reinforcing. Christian spirituality is to love God with all of your beliefs, attitudes and actions, and to love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus said those were the two most important Instructions of how to live in God's reality, God's way. And he also taught that the, the only way to enter into that way of life, that relationship with God, was to trust him, to trust Jesus, as the divine point of access 
if you like. Two, God's love for us and his forgiveness for us. And I put two different quotes from different sources there, from John and Matthew, two of the Gospels that are uh, from independent sources that go to make that point. One where Jesus is saying, I'm the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the way to God, the truth of God revealing himself and the life of God that you can partake of. Or from Matthew, and take up my yoke and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. So that's science on the one hand and Christianity on the other in a nutshell. Is Christianity unscientific? Well, in the modern sense of the term, for something to be unscientific would obviously, given our definition, it would merely be for it to be something besides a first-order discipline, the primary goal of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. Okay? In that sense, Christianity, since it isn't science, is unscientific. So, yes... Christianity is unscientific, in that sense. But then, philosophy is unscientific. Art is unscientific. Jam is unscientific. You know, so what? Big deal. I think the way in which Sam Harris uses the language of unscientific and the way he then slips to talk about being irrational and repudiating the scientific world view means that he can't mean simply that this is meant to be a, a criticism of Christianity that it's unscientific we could really take it as saying what he's really claiming is that Christianity is anti scientific it's anti scientific Well, how would I, as a Christian, respond to that criticism? Here's how I do it. We need to disambiguate between these concepts of being unscientific and being anti-scientific. The big issue is clearly the anti-scientific one. Being anti-scientific means being in active opposition to some essential element of science. So, for example... Disagreeing with scientific theory X, whatever that might be, and I'm sure examples might spring to your mind in relation to Christianity, or some some Christians. Disagreeing with scientific theory X doesn't make one anti-scientific. After all, uh, theories can be scientific without being true, and scientists do disagree quite a lot all the time. Adopting an anti-scientific position might lead you to rejecting some scientific theory X, but the fact that someone rejects theory X doesn't prove that they've adopted an anti-scientific position. There's an asymmetry involved here. Rather, being anti-scientific, I think, should mean this. Being committed to a position, whether that's a belief or an attitude or an action, that's in tension with something that unifies participants in the scientific project when they are having scientific disagreement. So what's actually objectionable here? What's objectionable about rejecting 
a scientific theory for anti-scientific reasons isn't the rejection of the scientific theory per se. You can do that without being anti-scientific after all. Rather, it's the fact that one flouts some, what philosophers would call an epistemic virtue, a way that you ought to think about things or ought to reason about reality. If you flout some epistemic virtue that's bound up in the wise practice of rationality as such, per se, as Stuart C. Hackett says, science, in this narrower modern sense, cannot function without employing the universal criteria of knowledge. So the charge of being unscientific from Sam Harris boils down to the charge of being irrational. And hey presto, note that in the quote that I read from Harris, he indeed slides from saying unscientific to calling Christianity irrational. He thinks that people like Francis Collins are flouting or rejecting one or more genuine epistemic virtues, ways that they ought to think. Now, your options for rebutting such a charge are limited. There's only so many ways you can go about it. You could, A, show that one isn't actually overriding the relevant purported epistemic virtue. You could, B, show that the relevant purported epistemic virtue should, in fact, be overridden. It should be limited or qualified for some good reason. Or you can see, show that the relevant purported epistemic virtue should actually just be rejected out of hand. That's not a sensible way of thinking. It's not wise to think like that. So let me give you an example. Um, Occam and his famous metaphysical razor often crop up in discussions between uh, theists and atheists. This is uh, going to be a picture of William of Ockham. He was a medieval um, theologian, thinker, and he's probably been using his razor because he's shaved the top of his head already this morning. And you might hear this objection to a, a supernatural worldview. You might say, hey, look, naturalism, materialism, is simpler than theism. It's much simpler to think that there's only one kind of stuff and it's matter. Much simpler. Granted. But, rebuttal, the virtue of simplicity in one's explanations, in one's thinking about things, is limited, should be overridden by considerations of explanatory adequacy. Otherwise, one's simple explanation is merely a simplistic explanation that doesn't really explain what's really there. So it's more important to have an adequate explanation than to have a simple explanation. What Occam's razor basically says is if you've got two equally adequate explanations but one simpler than the other, pick the simpler one. Otherwise, there's basically an infinity of theories that you could believe about things. So the Christian, I think, should absolutely grant the unscientific status of Christianity, but assign critics the burden of justifying assertions like those made by Sam Harris that Christianity is anti-scientific. And those critics must demonstrate that the Christian necessarily flouts a genuine epistemic virtue good way of thinking about stuff, as a Christian. 
So for any objection like Harris's, I would ask these two questions. First of all, well, does being a Christian really require one to, to go against, to flout this supposedly essential epistemic virtue that the critique will be relying upon? And that's notwithstanding the actual beliefs, attitudes, or actions of Christian individuals or groups of Christians, churches, denominations, whatever. It might very well be that some Christians are being irrational, or some groups of Christians are being irrational, whilst it's still true that you don't have to be irrational in order to be a Christian. And that is really the the issue here. Do you have to be irrational, anti-scientific, in order to be a Christian? Well, secondly, the second question you should ask is, is this accusation actually grounded in a sound, properly formulated, properly ranked epistemic virtue that is essential to the scientific project? Because only if so could the belief be anti-scientific. And the burden of proof, I suggest, rests on the critic to make good on that accusation. So let me give you again two examples, and on the one hand, and on on the other hand. Objection. Here's a quote from new atheist Victor J. Stenger. He says, faith means, quote, having belief in the absence of supportive evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. How can you have faith? you Christians talk about, when that's what faith means. Rebuttal? Well, whilst science certainly does depend upon repudiating blind faith in the teeth of at least sufficient important qualification counter-evidence, so does Christianity. Christianity does not involve, by definition, blind faith. Stenger's definition of faith is one completely alien to the Bible, to the disciples, to Jesus, to the majority tradition of Christian theology. He's just attacking a straw man. So this objection from Stenger fails because it doesn't pass criteria one, question one. On the other hand, objection from Sam Harris, Christianity repudiates, quote, the scientific worldview... Presumably because it, it rejects the worldview of metaphysical naturalism, of materialism. Well, rebuttal, whilst being a Christian certainly does entail rejecting naturalism, you know, a commitment to naturalism is not an essential element of scientific thinking or the scientific project. So this objection fails because it doesn't satisfy criteria two. Now, my position, of course, would be that any such objection of the Christianity is unscientific, i.e. anti-scientific, i.e. irrational persuasion in this field is going to fail to pass one or other or indeed both of those criteria. Now, the fact that Christianity is unscientific in the modern sense doesn't mean that Christianity has nothing to do with science as if they kind of lived in these hermetically sealed compartments 
Um, the same thing could be said of philosophy, or indeed art, or jam making. Thomas Aquinas, for example, a very famous Christian theologian philosopher from the 13th century, using the old sense of the term science, called theology the queen of the sciences. It was the, the uni that unified the university when they were founded in the medieval period. And theology, the queen of sciences, was assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. Back, back then, the area that we now call science in the, in the modern term was actually just called natural philosophy. And the term science was coined by a, a vicar in the um, uh, 18th, 19th century, I can't quite remember. So Christianity and science certainly have overlapping interests. Think about faith's attitudes towards reality. Um, the field that philosophers might call axiology, about values and what we value in life. Uh, how we should think about things, about community. Science is a communal activity, uh, very largely. And so both science and Christianity have an interest in things like community and, and the values of community and so on. What about actions and things you do, the stuff that would come under the bracket of ethics within uh, philosophy? What about the ethics of scientific research? Or deployment of scientific knowledge in, in technology? What about environmental concerns, a use of appropriate technology solutions in third world countries, and so on? Certainly overlapping interests between science and Christianity. And in terms of belief, well, there is some overlap in interest between science and Christianity in terms of beliefs and knowledge about physical material reality. Christianity is not just a sort of... Um, Philosophy that's sort of an abstract thing detached from claims about the nature of the real world. Unlike some religions, Christianity kind of on occasion puts its neck on the on the block of empirical reality. And back to Peter proclaiming the resurrection of, of Jesus. So as Professor J.P. Morland, philosopher from America, says, Christianity claims to be a knowledge tradition. And it places knowledge, not merely truth, at the centre of its proclamation and discipleship. The Old and New Testaments, including the teachings of Jesus, claim not merely that Christianity is true, but that a variety of its moral and religious assertions can be known to be true. Now, it may be wrong about that, but that's the nature of the claim that it's making. And Victor J. Stenger and other new atheists who would give similar definitions of the nature of faith are simply misrepresenting what Christianity is when they make those kind of claims. Here's Dawkins and uh, Anthony Grayling saying practically the same thing as Stenger about the nature of faith. A commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason, says Grayling. I much prefer C.S. Lewis's definition of faith. He said it's the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. New atheists don't seem to have heard of Bible verses like this one from a letter written by Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, where he says to other Christians, always be ready, be prepared to give an answer. It's translating a Greek word, apologia, which was a word from the court system. It meant your defence speech in court. 
to give a defence, a reasoned defence, to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have in Christ, but do this with gentleness and respect. You will notice that the um, loose attitude actions schema falls in place here again. And Christians sometimes talk about, as uh, the letter of James does, about faith and works. Well, the works is obviously the, the actions bit. The faith relates to both the beliefs and the attitudes. In philosophical parlance, philosophers sometimes distinguish between a belief that something is the case, I believe that X is the case, and believing in something, or believing in someone. And if you marry a belief that with a belief in, that's quite a good sort of philosophical definition of what the Bible means by faith. Perhaps the closest modern word that we could kind of use might be trust. Faith is trust. And trust might be badly founded and irrational, but trust can also be well-grounded. There's nothing about the nature of trust that means that it must be irrational. And everyone, including scientists, of course, exercises trust. Now, in each instance where you have these overlapping interests between Christianity and science, you could, of course, ask, are these perspectives incompatible with each other or compatible? Are they incompatible perhaps because science or Christian theology or both are wrong? Are they compatible? That could be a mere matter of coherence, a lack of contradiction, or a matter of consonance, as it's called, that is, the presence of support between the viewpoints. I'm going to just skip over that one very briefly and talk about methodological naturalism as a bit of a sidebar here. Um, but as philosopher Nancy Mercy put, uh, Murphy puts it, she says, science as science seeks naturalistic explanations. Anyone who attributes the characteristics of, say, living things to creative intelligence has, by definition, stepped into the arena of metaphysics or theology. You'll notice that this kind of rule of what's called methodological naturalism wasn't part of the definition of science that I gave earlier. Because with an increasing number of philosophers of science, I think it's a very bad rule. I think this is one of those supposed epistemic virtues of science that should be chucked out the window, basically. Um, think of it like this. Supposing science should stick to that rule. If science is wedded to met methodological naturalism, then when a Christian says that the best explanation of some data set, X, is a miracle happened. And the scientist says that the best explanation of X is a wholly naturalistic one rather than a miracle. They're not contradicting each other if you stick with methodological naturalism. Because the scientist, as a scientist, isn't allowed to consider the possibility that a miracle happened. By definition, science has to appeal to an entirely naturalistic story to explain things, even if that's not the true explanation. 
And as the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Moulton, among others, argues, this means that science is no longer a search for what's true. Which is a bit kind of odd when you think about it. He says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. And if science is kind of anything, many people would think that your definition should include something about looking for the truth. So one last section. You'll often have heard of this metaphor of the warfare between science and religion. It comes from a couple of famous uh, books on the subject uh, by uh, writers a couple of uh, hundred years ago. Philosopher of science Thomas Dixon, in his uh, Science and Religion, a very short introduction in that little Oxford very short introduction series, very good series of books, says, although the idea of warfare between science and religion remains widespread and popular, recent academic writing on the subject has been devoted primarily to undermining the notion of an inevitable conflict. Alistair McGrath, his uh, scientist and a theologian, he says the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict, historically speaking, is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. I want to go beyond suggesting that there's a lack of conflict between Christianity and science to suggesting that there is actually a consonance between them. Here is a brief video clip of an agnostic cosmologist called Paul Davis. Uh, he writes uh, very interesting uh, books for the general readership about cosmology um, and uh, the origin of life and these sorts of things. Uh, so he's a theoretical physicist, quite a well-respected one, but he's also an agnostic. But here's what he says about the historical relationship between uh, belief in God and science. So it says you have to buy into these philosophical assumptions about the nature of reality, the nature of human mentality, in order to do science. So they're not things that, that you get out of science, they're things that you bring to doing science. And historically speaking, in the development of, of what we now think of as science in the experimental sense, that it came from a theological belief in a monotheistic God. Actually, I'd suggest that there are a number of philosophical assumptions that you have to make as a scientist, all of which would be warranted, would be rational to hold, could be grounded in a theistic view of reality. We start off here at the top of this with the two that Paul Davies mentions. The natural world exhibits a rational order. The human mind is to some degree able to understand that rational order. That human cognitive and sensory faculties are generally reliable, that they tell us reliably about reality. Um, you could think of things like that your memory is generally reliable. How could you, um, you know? Well, I know that my memory and people's memories are generally reliable because I remember reading a study that they did about it that, sh oh, hang on a minute just relied on my memory in order to prove that memory is reliable. That's circular reasoning, isn't it? Oh dear. You, know, you just have to take it as an act of faith. Well, 
It could be an act of faith that's actually rationally justified by a certain picture of the world. And it's the picture of the world that science in the modern sense grew out of. That there are knowable objective values. That there is truth. That there's, there's goodness. That it really is wrong to plagiarise and fudge your research data rather than just subjectively taboo. Um, beauty, which many cosmologists use as a criteria of, of theory selection. That the natural world isn't divine. That basically the pantheism is, is, is false. That when you cut up the frog to see how it works, you're not impiously cutting up God. Or that the natural world isn't governed by multiple competing or capricious forces. It's not just a sort of chaos or a, a warring squabble of some kind. That polytheism is false. And historians and philosophers of science have generally said that these kind of underlying philosophical undergirdings to science were justified and, and explicitly so by the, the founders of modern science from a theistic worldview and may explain why science grew up in the European kind of region rather than you know, China or elsewhere in the world. It's not that you know, white Europeans are mentally superior to black people, like James Watson was saying in the beginning there. So why was it that science grew up where it did? Philosophers and historians of science say it's because of this relationship between philosophy, theology, and science. So, one last guy to quote from. And this is a very interesting academic, a sociologist of science called Steve Fuller, who a couple of years ago wrote this in one of his books. He said, While I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator, no plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism, as a positive doctrine, has done precious little for science. Science makes sense only if there is an overall design to nature that we are especially well equipped to fathom, even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day -day animal survival. Humanity's creation in the image of God provides the clearest historical rationale for the rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. Let me diagram it with this rather charming medieval picture of Adam and Eve in the garden with God. Supposing you believe that there's a God who creates the world, that God is a rational, wise creator who creates a world that reflects something of his nature, therefore. And that God also creates human beings, creates humanity in his image, being a bit like God, being the thing in creation that is most like God. Well then, if you believe that, you would expect people to be able to understand at least something of the nature and reality of God. And you would also expect them to be able to understand and fathom something of the nature of the reality of 
creation nature, as we now call it. You expect the rationality in here, in the human mind, to kind of mesh with the rationality that's out there because you think they both come from the same source. So is Christianity unscientific? Yes, in that Christianity is not science. No, in that Christianity is not anti-scientific, indeed far from it, at least at that basic philosophical level, it's very pro-scientific. No, in that science isn't epistemologically or ontologically omnicompetent, that is, it's not going to give you all of the answers, and maybe Christianity gives you some of those. No, in that Christianity is a knowledge tradition, and they have overlapping areas of interest. No, in that Christianity did help give birth to science. And no, in that theism provides metaphysical warrant or justification for the scientific project. Okay, there's, I know, quite a lot of concepts, definitions, and things that I've put together there for you. So we will take questions, but we'll also just take a few minutes to have a break, stretch your legs, use the loos which are out the back there and to the left and the right, eat up any leftover pizza and things that's still at the back, uh, have a talk with your friends about what's been going on, and come back with some nice juicy questions. Fran, thank you very much. So I want to set the ball rolling for us. Gentleman in the back there, hello. Hi. Um, if I understood your talk correctly, you're basically saying that science can't give us the answer to all questions because it just kind of answers things through the physical world, the physical universe. So you're saying that it could be quite compatible with Christianity, with faith, and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's great. Um, you also said that in the Bible, it kind of says to be able to give a reason for, for the hope that you profess. And you've sort of kind of given some hints that uh, Christianity might be compatible with science in terms of the universe being understandable to our minds. But I, I'm wondering if that might be compatible with other belief systems as well. What, what mm. kind of uh, reason can you give specifically? Because like, if you're a Christian, what reason can you give that Christianity is... What is the, what, why are you a Christian basically as opposed to these other things? Okay, grand. Okay, so the question boils down to uh, what specific positive reasons can I give for being specifically a Christian theist rather than uh, something else? Okay. Um, let me start by relating it to the, to the talk that I'm giving because it's, it's taking us slightly beyond the, the bounds of the remit um, that, I, that I had there. Um, but I was also suggesting in the talk that, that science and Christianity, although they're different things, do have areas of overlapping interest, and that those include the nature of the physical world on occasion, um, and that where they overlap, in order to rationally remain a Christian, you obviously want there to be at least a lack of conflict, but more than that, you would quite like there to be some positive 
support and relationship between the Christian worldview and a, a scientific understanding of reality and, and so on. And I get started giving some sort of general reasons why one might think it's reasonable to be a, a theist, uh, given the way that science uh, came about and works, and how you might uh, rationally justify the kind of philosophical beliefs that you have to buy into in order to do science, but which science itself can't justify, but which a theistic view can. But then, as you're really asking, how do I go on a, a, a step from there? How do I get even more specific? You know, why aren't I a Jew or a Muslim or a philosophical theist or even perhaps just a, a deist, uh, someone who believes in a sort of absentee landlord kind of God who created and, and then potted off? Well, for me, really, it all does come down to the question of who was Jesus? If Jesus is who Christians have said he was since the earliest days, then Christianity is true, and if it's not, then it's false. Um, and for example, as um, very famous early Christian writer St. Paul uh, put it, if, if Jesus, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, as the earliest apostles claimed, then Christianity is false. Your faith is, is worthless, he said. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, if that miracle did take place, it would seem to be a sort of divine supernatural uh, stamp of approval upon the claims that Jesus made about himself and the way that he can, could have stood in relationship to, to God and to, to us. Um, so it can come down to a uh, uh, well, it's not a simple question, uh, but a shorter question as, you know, what did Jesus claim about himself, and did he do something that makes it rational to believe it, such as rising from the dead again? Uh, now, science is going to have some input into that. You know, at the very least, if you um, were able to track down the right burial tomb and see that there was still a body in it and say uh, match uh, DNA from inside the bones to the DNA on the shroud of Turin or something and you know you might be able to do that kind of thing and you could disprove Christianity equally there might be and I think there is a sufficient historical evidence that could form the basis of a good argument to the best explanation that God actually did raise Jesus from the dead um, but science is going to be part of that discussion but as I intimated in the talk it can't be the whole of that discussion and certainly you can't just bring the assumption to the table a miracle couldn't have happened or, or say things like you, you can't believe Jesus rose from the dead that's unscientific or anti-scientific because then you're buying into this idea that science must only explain things by reference to the physical, or buying into the idea that science is the only way to explain things. You know, maybe, maybe an argument that Jesus rose from the dead based on certain bits of historical data, like he was dead, he was buried in a tomb, that tomb was later found empty, uh, loads of people afterwards, uh, individuals and groups of people, genuinely believed that they met the risen Jesus, it completely changed their socio-religious outlook on life and they founded the church. Um, the kind of historical data that would be admitted by the majority of, of scholars looking at New Testament history and so on, of all 
theological and metaphysical persuasions. But the question then comes, what's the best explanation of that data? And a really big input into what you think the best explanation could even be is going to be your metaphysical beliefs beyond your scientific. Going to be things like, do you approach the data as an atheist or an agnostic or as a theist of some kind? That's going to make a big difference to how you assess the arguments based on the data. Um, so I hope I've broken that down. It seems like quite a long answer, but I had to sort of build from the talk to you're going from a very general to a very specific, so I had to take the road. Yeah. Thank you. It's the fact that it's grounded in the natural world for what we can physically see. And I, I, I like the idea that you kind of that science does have that limitation. But what sort of way around that is there? Science is very much sort of, in my understanding, it wants to break away from limitations. It's very much about moving forward. Mm. So what would you suggest to the scientists if they are very much limited by that view? What can they do? Is it a case that they have to go with religion as a hand in hand with their science? Or is there other ways? Excellent question. Does, does science have to go hand in hand with some kind of religious or philosophical viewpoint on the world, given that science has certain limitations, but that science is also about trying to move forward all the time? I think the sense in which science is about trying to move forward all the time is, is, is trying to get a deeper and more comprehensive theoretical understanding of physical reality. Now, it might be limited to giving us an understanding of physical reality, but it can continue to make progress in noticing and understanding and getting better and better and more elegant models of that physical reality. So there's plenty to do for scientists. You know, uh, I'm certainly not saying, as some scientists did just before the advent of quantum <laughs> mechanics, that well, it's basically all done dusted for physics and uh, we won't really need the physics department in another 10 years because we've basically found it all out. And then, then Einstein and people come along and kind of <laughs> say, and that kind of thing can kind of always happen. Scientific explanations are always tentative in the sense that they're always open to a new observation that needs to be taken into account. New experience has to be kind of fed in. So there's plenty to do. But I certainly think that if you, if you talk about science and philosophy, science cannot but be wedded to philosophy. Because science depends upon certain assumptions about reality that science itself cannot justify. And different scientists may or may not think about that relationship. And if they do think about it, they may or may not wed science and those philosophical undergirdings of science to a particular philosophical system. But you're going to, if you pursue the line of thought, you're going to have to try and wed science to some kind of philosophical thinking about things, because you, you can't but do that. Now, I would suggest that a theistic, at the very least, metaphysical system it, it gives a very warm and comfortable home to those philosophical undergirdings for, for science. Um, you know, you have to go to people of uh, different metaphysical persuasion and see if they can persuade you that they've got a better home for science than a theistic worldview. But you certainly you have to marry it. It is, by its very nature, because it has limits, because it has those, those limits that it does, it then depends upon things beyond those limits. Gentleman in the back there, yeah. 
Christians believe that um, God created everything, then does it follow that um, the Christian faith also um, holds that God deliberately created the kind of tension between science and Christianity and intended for this debate to happen and to be Golly, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? Let me repeat this for the. Given that Christians believe that God created uh, everything excepting Himself, uh, does this mean that God uh, created deliberately this tension between science and religion and kind of had this debate in mind when He created? Uh, well, golly, in one sense I feel like I just want to cop out the entire question and say, you know, who, who am I to know the mind of God on this one? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I have no particular revelatory insight into this uh, question. Um, what can I say philosophically about it? Um, just because you believe, if you do, that God created everything except himself, it doesn't follow necessarily from that, that everything within that creation is necessarily specifically the way that it is because God wanted it that way. It doesn't actually follow. Because it might be, for example, that God desired a, a, a certain uh, general schema of things, certain outcomes, and that there were certain uh, necessary means to those ends. Um, so, for example, this is one that takes place within the, the discussion about you know, God and the problem of evil, and so on, and the whole reply about, what, well, what about free will? If God wants people who have the capacity to genuinely love one another, to genuinely love him, don't they have to have the capacity to choose not to love him? Does that mean that God wants people not to love one another? Well, no, it doesn't. God wants them to love one another and to love God. But if he's going to make it possible for there to be beings who can freely choose to love, then he also has to make it possible that they don't. You see. Uh, and so there's, you can't say that, that just because God created everything, that therefore everything about creation must be the way that God actually wants it to be. So uh, you can't draw a line there, and you can't draw a line between God and this discussion. Maybe this is one of those kind of issues where there's a sort of, as it were, in sort of engineering terms, this is part of the best design compromise that had to be made um, in metaphysical terms. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think you can at least justify it on a priori grounds, um, but it certainly might be the case, but I, I have no particular insight. Yeah. Yes, sir. I want to know, because uh, science is a process and involves the development of this process. Mm. One, Christianity is a relationship in the divine. In that case, we also know that science has classified all the creation into living and non-living. Isn't it? Living thing and non-living thing. This is science. And science, as you said, is a body of knowledge. But then, uh, what is it? Who is the originator of the knowledge? Okay, let me, let me reflect this back and make sure that I'm on the on the right kind of bullseye. Gentleman is asking. Um, 
given that science is uh, a body of knowledge on the one hand, and it's also a, a process of discovery on the other, and you're talking about Christianity as since it's involving a relationship, and that relationship is based on knowledge. So you've got the, the belief that and the belief in that I talked about in the talk. Um, perhaps you're intimating in your, your question that um, who creates the knowledge, you're thinking kind of along the lines that the, the explanation for the knowledge that science produces must be God. Is that the kind of line you're going down? I, I'm, I'm suggesting something like that, but not exactly that. Let me try and, and clarify what I, what I am kind of saying. It's great to have questions like this, because it really forces you to try and be clear about what you actually think about this. Um, I've, the knowledge produced by science, I would say, in the first hand, is obviously it's produced by scientists. It's produced by people experiencing things and thinking about stuff and criticising each other and, and so on. Um, but I am suggesting that our capacity for doing science is something that's best explained in terms of the, a theistic metaphysic. For example, I had that quote from Steve Fuller who talked about how science is meant to give us knowledge about things that go beyond the bounds of our day-to-day -day animal survival. Say you had a uh, metaphysically naturalistic, materialistic worldview. There's just matter and what it happens to do. And the best explanation on that view of uh, how people came about is that we evolved by a process of blind random mutations and natural selection. What is nature selecting for in, in that metaphor, because it's not obviously intentionally, it's blindly selecting. Well, it selects for survival value. It selects for what works well enough to predominate over the other forms in that particular environment that happens to be there. Okay? So now you think, okay, the explanation for the workings of my brain, with my cognitive faculties, since my mind is just my brain on this worldview, is a history of random accidents and selections on the basis of what works. What degree of confidence does that story give me in, the, in thinking that the way my mind works gives me a deep, rational, reliable insight into the way that reality really is, particularly when we go beyond, you know, being able to dodge the right way when a tiger leaps at me, all the way to thinking that I know that quantum mechanics works, or that Einsteinian relativity theory is true, or, you know. Well, perhaps not very much. But if that's the case, then it actually gives you a reason to doubt that you really know what reality is like. It will give you a reason for doubting that, you know, naturalism was true. How would you know that naturalism is true, given a naturalistic explanation of how come you come to think about things and believe things? Um, if you want to pursue this further, there's a very famous American philosopher called Alvin Plantinga, 
who's written and lectured quite a lot upon what he calls the anti-naturalism argument from evolution. And he argues that the conjunction of an evolutionary explanation of our cognitive faculties plus a materialistic worldview is self-defeating. And on the other hand, would argue that, of course, a theistic worldview, married to evolution, or not, depending on your choice, would actually give us some reason for trusting the reliability of our cognitive faculties. It's not an argument against evolution, it's an argument against naturalism in conjunction with evolution. If you could ponder that one. Uh, okay, so we've got, uh, we've got a hand, a lady at the back, and then I'll, I'll come to you on that side. So I'll take one from each side and the more kind of zigzag about. So, I'm going to leave it about there. So, we've been talking about that Christianity is an anti because we obviously do believe in a lot of scientific theories as well. Um, can you give us like maybe some sort of practical um, application where a Christianity would agree with science? You know, there are mm. examples where Christians will say this mm. and we can explain that scientifically, you know, through our beliefs in scientific theory. Yeah. That's true. Sure. Okay. Excellent question. Repeat that. Uh, can I give any practical examples of where Christianity would make a claim about reality and science would make the same claim, basically? Um, I can think of a, just a couple off the top of my head uh, beyond those kind of making claims about the philosophy of science but the actual scientific claims you're kind of moving on to there well for a start the ancient Greeks thought that the universe was eternal particularly Aristotle and this dominated thinking even uh, uh, church thinking uh, at some stages Thomas Aquinas and so on right up until the sort of 1940s 1950s but the mainstream tradition of Christian interpretation of, of Genesis 1 verse 1 and various other passages in the Bible has always drawn attention to the fact that it says things like, in the beginning God created, that there was a beginning. Thomas Aquinas held that it was something that we could only know through trusting scripture, it wasn't something we could know through science. But in the 1950s, 60s and so on, evidence mounted that indeed the universe had a beginning called Big Bang Theory. Um, so there's one example where the Bible makes a claim about reality that it had a beginning, it has a finite past. And science came to eventually say the same thing. Um, there was an astronomer from America called Robert Jastrow who wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. Um, and he finishes with a famous uh, passage where he basically says... Um, you know, uh, scientists have been you know, doggedly and determinately climbing the peaks of ignorance to get to the top of the mountain of scientific understanding and they just get over the last ridge onto the top of the mountain and there they find before them a band of theologians sitting cross-legged at the top like, oh, gone there eventually um, I did a, a talk recently and it, I got a podcast channel yeah, you can track it down through iTunes. You might like to track that down. I did a talk recently. I haven't put it up yet, but I will soon. On um, some of the miracles in the Old Testament, I was looking at the, some of the miracles of Exodus in particular. You know, the, the ten plagues and the crossing of the, the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan and so on. Um, and the Bible itself gives some indications in the text that God used various natural processes to cause these miracles. In the crossing of the Red Sea, it talks about uh, a strong uh, east wind 
coming and pushing the waters apart overnight, for instance. The miracle was kind of the miracle of the timing uh, and the foreknowledge that it was going to happen at the right time to save them and so on. Uh, I was recently reading uh, a Science Daily website, a report uh, on there, you can probably track it down if you Google it, uh, by some uh, scientists doing computer modelling of uh, a theory where uh, in the Nile Delta, where uh, there's a sort of big bend in uh, the watercourse, if there was a 63 mile an hour wind for a certain length of time, it would push the water back at the two junctions, leaving dry land between the two, and they've, they've modelled uh, that this could work in computer terms. Other, other theorists have talked about a thing, thing called wind set down, which can push uh, water uh, through wind from one area to another and leave uh, dry land. Uh, I was also reading a 2008 uh, peer-reviewed journal article uh, about the, uh, the, the uh, medical uh, sort of etiology of um, plagues in disaster situations where they modelled uh, uh, an explanation for the ten plagues of the, the Exodus account based upon uh, things to do with uh, climate warming and the El Nino effect uh, in the uh, Yale Journal of um, Medicine and uh, something or other, but uh, uh, Google explanation for the ten plagues of the Old Testament. So I think those are just some recent things that come to mind because I've been talking about them recently. Um, but some peer-reviewed kind of journal stuff talking about um, uh, possible scientific explanations for things that are claimed in the Bible. Um, and that's not to take away from the miraculousness of the things that claimed in the Bible because the Bible itself says God used this sort of intermediate cause sometimes to cause them. Um, but they're um, very interesting uh, sort of correlations uh, to draw nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought I was going to come back over here, didn't I? You had a, a hand up a little while. Yeah. If you're saying that there are unanswerable questions in science, surely that is coming from a Christian perspective where you believe in the metaphysical, that there is a metaphysical, therefore there can't. Like, I'm of the belief that hmm. science has all the answers, they're just yet to be <coughs> why, why is it surely from a Christian perspective that you're thinking that there are unanswerable questions? Okay, yeah, good. Uh, again, for the ladies and gents on the tape, um, what I'm saying that science... There are, there are questions that are unanswerable by science. Is that because I'm assuming a metaphysics where there is a supernatural? Um, I, don't, I don't think so, at least not directly, because what I'm pointing out is that in order for science to be carried out, you have to have certain philosophical beliefs. Uh, and I draw the distinction in that way because they're beliefs that you, you, you rely on that can't be justified by the science. Let me, let me give this to you two ways to kind of just make this as a purely philosophical point about the nature of science. For one thing, scientific beliefs are meant to be beliefs that are based on evidence. Okay? You should have evidence for your beliefs in science. And in lots of domains of life, it's good to justify your beliefs, your claims about reality, with reference to other sort of premises or facts in the argument building up to what you believe. But can you, is it possible to justify everything that you believe on the basis of something else? No. 
Because the demand that everything you believe be justified with reference to something else leads to an infinite regress. You'd never believe anything until I proved the beliefs that it was based on with other beliefs that it was based on, but you'd never believe them until I proved them with other beliefs that they were based on, and so on. So, if we do rationally believe things, and of course I think we do rationally believe things, there must be some solution, some way of getting out of this infinite regress. It must be the case, actually, that there are some things that it's rational to believe and to use as the kind of grounds for believing other things without having to base them on other beliefs or evidence. They're what philosophers call properly basic beliefs. Um, ones relevant to science, for example. There really is a mind-independent physical reality that we're exploring when we do science. Now, you can't justify that belief from science. But I think it's a rational belief to hold. Um, there may or may not be other beliefs to, to justify that. But ultimately, philosophers recognise that you have to have some way that you start arguing from without having to argue to. Because if you demand that you argue to everything, you can't fulfil that demand. Okay. The other way of putting this is simply to say that, like, like Hawking, that, that, quote, the claim that, um, for example, uh, you can know everything through science is equivalent to the claim that the only way to know anything is scientifically. See those equivalent statements. But the statement that the only way to know anything is science is not a scientific claim. How do you justify that claim scientifically? We can't. It's a philosophical claim about science. So from both of those angles you can see that in order to even have science there must be things that it's rational to believe that lie outside of science. And I haven't invoked anything supernatural in order to, to argue that. So, yeah. Uh, I think we had a hand up here first, but then I'll come over to, to you and then you. Yeah, so boom, boom, boom. Let me try and remember that. Hello. Hi. Um, it's easy for science, atheistic scientists to argue about Christianity in general, making it impersonal. Mm. But then how can they argue the same thing when their own peers... Mm. are Christians and are exactly the same level academically as themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, kind of sociological observation that they do. The quote that I opened up from Sam Harris is a classic example. Um, you know, Francis uh, Crick was the first, uh, uh, was uh, the first, or was it, I'm getting the two names, Crick and Watson, and uh, getting jumbled in my mind, but the first leader of the Human Genome Project was, was, was an atheist, the guy who said they're, they're racist in the larks, sorry. And Francis Collins, who came in, was a Christian. Now, they're obviously, both, they both agree about the science that they're working on in the field. So they wouldn't both be leading the Human Genome Project. You know, they agree on the science. Where they differ is on the philosophies, on the, the religious beliefs. Um, and it was um, Stephen Jay Gould, the guy who wrote The Panda's Thumb and, um, and so on, a uh, paleontologist, uh, big in the 70s and 80s from America who said that exactly what you said, that the fact that you know, half of my colleagues kind of have a religious belief shows that really that the discussion is it's not a religion versus science issue 
it's rather a religion versus philosophy issue, I would say. Um, that's where the real rubber hits the road. It's in the different philosophical backgrounds that people bring to doing science, defining science, interpreting the results of science. That's much more where the debate is than on the science itself. Um, so, kind of, I, I agree. It's old. But they do. Uh, no, it's over here. Yes. Excellent question. So, if science was able to come up with some piece of evidence that did directly contradict uh, something that was essential to the things you'd had to believe in order to be a Christian, and it would have to contradict it with um, sufficient uh, justification warrant to override whatever justification I might be able to give for holding the Christian beliefs. So even if there's a contradiction between the two beliefs, I can still say which of these two beliefs has the most evidence going for it. And it, 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 you, know, you can't just prejudge that it's going to be the science. But let's, you know, qualifications taking, supposing the science overwhelmingly shows that something I have to believe in order to be a Christian is wrong, what do I do? I stop being a Christian. Yeah. Because part of being a Christian is being dedicated to caring about truth and honesty and loving what is good. Uh, Jesus himself, the apostles all say, now, I mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. You've got to care about truth, meditate on what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. Uh, and it just becomes hypocritical as well as self contradictory to do anything else if faced with a genuine defeater, as it would be called, for, for Christianity. What I would probably do in that, that instance is I would retreat the minimal distance that was plausible. So you might have some bit of evidence that showed that Christianity was false, but that wouldn't necessarily show that a belief in a God was false. You see, so I, I, it wouldn't necessarily mean that I immediately go, oh, well, Christianity is false, I'm going to go and become an atheist. You know, um, that would have to stand or fall on its own terms as well. But certainly, you know, you should not have blind faith, that is an anti-biblical concept, and you should try and be reasonable. I mean, Jesus is saying, love, the most important command, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. It's the beginning of the most important commandment. Yeah. Gentlemen about camp. I work at the university but I was not setting. I was gonna say yeah, I'm having a conversation with a lady I was working with actually. And um, just telling them basically that uh, if you go back in history, mm. I mean there were great scientists were Christians, so you know, we not to be ashamed or 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 we looked down on obviously mm. like art etc. Um, I mean, would you say, um, thanks for mentioning that, Thomas, for the chance after the look up on your hit point, but um, would you say that the discovery of DNA, and obviously what it is and the language information, etc., mm. um, and also the discovery, say, of the universe, how it's made in the tomb, how it's to you know, laws, of, laws, etc., mm. actually proves design? Hmm. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay, so this is a, a question about um, what philosophers would call natural theology, or arguments for God. Uh, and some of them, particularly in this field of, of design arguments or teleology, have been re- actually undergone a complete renaissance in the last 50 years or so because of various discoveries of modern science. As we uh, discover more about reality, there's more to interpret and explain. And some people think that you know, good explanations of those things should feature um, God or at least intelligence that might be best interpreted as being God. People will have to be careful over separating those, those two questions. My, my own view, and again, you know, this is a big subject to go into here, but you can track down um, some talks of mine on my podcast channel uh, about what's called intelligent design theory. It's uh, much misunderstood. Uh, if you want to get some clarity by it, I recommend Bradley Monton's book, um, God in, Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design Theory. He's an atheist philosopher of science who does a good job of clarifying and defending against a lot of contemporary criticism what intelligent design theory is. Uh, I'm certainly of, of the mind that a lot of those scientific discoveries that you mentioned, like the, the fine balance and the fine tuning and constants of the, of the cosmos from the Big Bang, and the nature of the information content in DNA. They're both, basically both examples of what statistician might call specified complexity. The guy to read on this is a mathematician philosopher called William Dembski, um, who uh, tries to generate uh, some um, strictness about how we are rational in inferring design as the best explanation of some pattern. Whether we're doing forensic science or search for extraterrestrial intelligence or whatever, he lays out a general schema for detecting intelligence as a good explanation. But he then also argues that if you apply that, 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 those criteria to things like the fine-tuning of the universe or uh, the information content of DNA, then actually the evidence points towards design as being the best explanation. Um, and there's a lot of controversy over that, particularly because of this whole methodological naturalism rule um, in my own writings, I've proposed a halfway house. I've said, fine, you know, I think it's a bad rule. I agree with Monton on this, but you could even have a halfway house and you can say, fine, let's, let's have it as a rule, if you like, that we never mention anything supernatural within science explicitly. But shouldn't we be allowed to mention intelligence? Otherwise, aren't the forensic scientists and the archaeologists up a creek without a paddle? No. <laughs> Did he fall or was he pushed? Oh, you, you know, you can't mention him being pushed. That's invoking intelligence. Well, no, you need to invoke intelligence, it's fine. But, you know, two forensic scientists looking at the body on the morgue slab, do they have to settle the debate about whether or not mind-body dualism is true or false before they can do their forensic science work? Because if dualism about mind-body relationship is true, then to invoke he was pushed is to invoke a supernatural explanation. Because you're talking about someone with a soul causing something. But we don't think we have to settle that dispute in order for it to be legitimate to mention intelligence because however we explain intelligence in terms of something supernatural or not, we recognise it as a causal reality in the world in terms of which it's sometimes sensible to explain things. And so I certainly think, why, you know, how can you legitimise explaining things in terms of intelligence in one scientific field but not in another without invoking a double standard? 
And actually, if you invoke intelligence to explain the fine-tuning of the universe, I think there are pretty good philosophical arguments for saying the best explanation of that would be God. In, in a philosophical sense. But I think once you're, once you're asking, what's the nature of that intelligence, you're into philosophy. Just as if we said, you know, he was pushed. But what is the nature of human consciousness? Then we're into philosophy of mind. We say the best explanation of fine-tuning is intelligence. What's the nature of that intelligence? Then we're into philosophy of religion. So that's, that's how I kind of divide it up. But basically I agree with you. Long answer to a short question, sorry. Yes? Um, you spoke a lot about how, well, what I got from the talk was that science is somewhat at war with Christianity because you focused on science proving Christianity. But what about the historical evidence that's come up lately, like um, about the different versions of Jesus, for example? like Horus and Mithra and the ten Greek sun worshippers of Eastern Europe, is that also, in a sense, it does disprove Christianity because they all, they all came before Jesus and they all seem to have done exactly what Jesus did in the Bible. Sure, okay. The chairman is gesturing to me. This is probably the last question that we've got time for. So the question is about what in terms of historical evidence about uh, mythological characters who seem to have uh, done the same things that Christ is meant to have done and done them supposedly earlier, or the myth existed earlier than uh, the Christian claims about Jesus existed. Okay. Uh, well, how can I put this? I think if you dig seriously into what the historians of the ancient world say about this and track down the actual primary sources primary sources on this you will find that either the analogy is not very close not as close as is often claimed on um, sort of the sort of internet websites and things and the occasional new atheist book where this is quite fashionable and or you will find that that, that the the analogy didn't actually pre-exist Christianity. For example, you'll find out things like the, the Mithras cult, which was big among Roman soldiers, for example. Certainly, Mithraism has a history older than Christianity, but there is actually not evidence that uh, the uh, Mithric uh, rites, that sometimes people draw a parallel between Mithric rites and uh, the Christian communion and the blood sacrifice and so on, that those, historically speaking, seem to Antedate rather than predate Christianity. It's more a case of the, the pagan religions losing out to this new Middle Eastern religion and wanting to compete by becoming closer to it rather than the borrowing happening the other way around. Um, and I think if you pursue um, serious ancient historians on this and primary sources on this, you'll see that that uh, supposed parallelisms doesn't really stand up. And even if there is a, a parallelism between two things and one existed earlier than the other, that in itself doesn't prove a borrowing between, between the two. Um, you have to have actually evidence of the borrowing because you can kind of data pick your data points in order to say, look, there are some things in common 
But you also have to look at, well, how many things are there not in common between the, the two? And I think a lot of the arguments you'll find rely upon noticing, highlighting points of analogy, but not mentioning lots of points of disanalogy between the two. Um, so uh, I would be very careful uh, about that kind of uh, historical claim myself. Yeah. Grant, we are out of time. Thank you uh, so much for attending and for asking some really good, deep questions. You've really uh, made me think on my toes tonight. So thank you very much.